0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. We have multiple people here today. I'm so excited to introduce to you. I'm Rachel Marshall with my regular co-host, Bruce Weiner. Hi, Bruce.
0: Good uh, afternoon. I guess I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but uh, good afternoon for me. Um, yeah, th- this is always exciting when we have uh, guests and when we have guests that are that are so much aligned line with our mindset, it even makes it better. So we're, I'm really looking forward to all the value that Mitzi can bring our listeners today.
1: Absolutely. So let me go ahead and introduce my husband, Lucas, as well. And then I'm going to bring Mitzi into the show. So, Lucas, thank you for being here.
2: It's great to be here.
1: <clears throat> well, Mitzi, I am going to give a formal introduction. But first, thank you so much for being willing to join us here on The Money Advantage. We're so happy to have you.
3: I love being on this show, and it's certainly a topic that's of great interest.
1: Wonderful. Well, if anyone who is listening, if you are familiar with Mitzi Purdue, you are in a rare treat. Um, I want to share with you a little bit about her background in case you're not familiar, because she is somebody that you really need to know about. So today we're talking about how to build strong families and strong family culture. And this is something that Mitzi has been working on for A very long time, more than her lifespan. So let me tell you how and why. Now she shares the wisdom of successful multi-generational families as she's connecting two business Titan families. So she can tell you more, but she is the daughter of one business Titan and he, her father founded the Sheraton hotel chain and she's the widow of another. And that is her late husband, the poultry magnet. Uh, I think I'm saying magnet correctly. Um, Frank Perdue. So she's also a businesswoman in her own right. And she started a family wine grape business, which is now the large one of the larger suppliers of wine grapes in California. Now, Mitzi likes nothing better than to share insider tips for building powerful and effective family culture. Her family of origin, the one that started Sheraton Hotels, began with the Henderson Estate Company in 1840. And her Perdue family started in 1920 in the poultry business, and so if you add up those two families, there is 276 years, not just of family business, but of staying close as a family. And that is profoundly beautiful. So these two families have that combined tradition of staying close as a family, keeping business in the family, and really flourishing. So Mitzi is happy to share actionable advice on how they did it. And Mitzi, you also have an amazing background. You have a degree from Harvard, as well as from George Washington University. Um, You're a former rice grower and wine grape grower in California. You're the past president of the 35,000-member American Women, And in addition, you were one of the US delegates to the UN Conference on Women in Nairobi. And you're a former commissioner of the US National Commission on Libraries and Information Science. And I also know that you are an anti-trafficking advocate. So much to talk about here. I'm sure we could be here for quite a long time, but let's really dig in today to this idea of how do I create a family culture, not by accident, because it's not going to become what you hope for it to be, but how do you intentionally craft and create a family culture that has traditions that solidify and strengthen and really glue together those relationships? over the generations. So Mitzi, I would love to hear you tell from your own perspective, just a little bit of the backstory of what has led you to helping other people create family traditions and culture.
3: Oh, super. Nobody's asked me the backstory before, but I'll share it with you. And the backstory of how I got into writing and talking about how to keep family businesses close. Because we have a saying in the Purdue family, happy family happy business. You you need to really address both. But the backstory of how I got into it? Well, I lived in New York for five years, and we're talking probably 10 years ago. But back then, I belonged to a group called the Famous Last Names Club. And they all had names that that you just would know. But one one of the conditions of belonging to the club is you never mentioned the names. Nevertheless, I won't tell you the names, but I will tell you about a lunch that got me started forevermore and being fascinated on what makes a high-functioning family. And at this lunch, you know, people who, every one of them, you've heard their names. And if you're guessing names, yeah, that was probably in it. I think there were 16 people there. And at this lunch, the topic for the day was, how well do you get along with your siblings? Mm. And we went around the table and I happened by accident to be at the head of the table. So it started to my right. And we went around the table talking about how people got along with their siblings. And it was just one catastrophe story after another. You know, one of them, it was a woman told me how her two brothers were freezing her out of the family business by not letting her know when meetings took place. Mm. Uh, Another one, which was worse, uh, there were four family members and they were, it's hard to believe, but I, but I did hear it. They were all suing each other. Mm. Their, their inheritance was going into legal fees Mm. or another, another case. There was, I think there were three members and one of them had, had a substance abuse problem and it wasn't, you know, it was just bad enough to muck everything up, but not enough to institutionalize him. Mm. And he wasn't just not pulling his weight. he was he was really harming the company. And as we went around the table, actually everybody had some catastrophe story. Uh, I mean one said that she was so mad at her brother that uh, if he died, he would she would jump on his grave with joy mm. I mean, and that's telling me that that there are a lot of very famous families that haven't figured out the basic of how to get along. Mm. And I started thinking, you know, this is what I'm describing it was a somewhat awkward moment for me because after they had gone around the table, and finally it's ending up with me, and you know, I'm supposed to tell everybody hey we're we're all roses and sunshine." <laughs> you know, I wasn't fitting in uh-huh. uh, so. I didn't. I didn't exactly say anything. I just sort of sent one mumble, 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 and, and the conversation moved on. But as I left that meeting, you know, I'm thinking, my the two families that I'm part of, they're the, they're the biggest source of joy in my life. Mm. Uh, what do we do that that not everybody else does, and what enabled us to last so long? Because the statistics on families lasting. Uh, every generation, only about a third of family businesses make it to the next generation. And by the time you're at 100 years, only one in 1,000 makes it that long. And I, so I, I spent the rest of my life, I think I can pinpoint what this happened. It was 14 years ago. I spent the next 14 years reading everything I could, interviewing people, even writing blog posts, uh, I, I write for wealth management and trust and estates management, and also the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents. And uh, I write on trafficking for Psychology Today, but even that gets into family stuff. And I'm monologuing too long.
1: I yeah. love I love that story. And you know, Mitzi, you as an entrepreneur are familiar with that idea of recognize a problem, provide a solution, and that's what I'm hearing that you did. You didn't say oh no, I guess it's not solvable, or oh no, I guess I just have some unique gene or rare set of circumstances that allows me to flourish and my family to do well that no one else can have. You said there's got to be a way to provide a solution that people desperately want and need and yet somehow it's getting missed in prioritizing all of the other things. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that attracted me to you so much when we first heard you speak and you were talking about how to have families stay strong. I mean, it doesn't really matter if you have tremendous generational wealth and you have billions of dollars flowing to the next generation. It's probably a
3: handicap unless you put a lot of thought and care and effort into it.
1: Yes. And, And if you don't have the strong culture and you don't have the strong relationships, what do you have then to to do well with financial resources that are passed down? And so we look at the reason that, or maybe not the reason, but the need for families that are passing wealth to create in the next generation, that stewardship and the accountability and the relationships and the character to be able to do those things well so that financial resources and and a financial inheritance is like kindling to a fire. They already know how to build the fire. They know how to handle it with responsibility and they know how to do things well. And so then you can give this additional gift that just allows their impact and their legacy to go further. But Mitzi, you have you have done so much work. One of your books here is how to make your family business last. You also have how to communicate values to children so they'll love it and how to make your family connected. So three of your books. I know you have another one coming out as well. Let's dig into family culture. So what is different about families that last for generations?
3: Okay, I'm going to jump in with something that every family can use, whether they're a business family or not. And this comes from research that I did. It's not personal research where I found the information But there is a department of Emory University. It's called the Family Narratives Laboratory. Mm. And uh, if anybody's feeling like taking notes, this is a note to take. Remember the name Robin Fivish, Emory University Family Narratives Laboratory. And she and her whole department, as far as I can tell, spend almost full time studying what makes a family high-functioning. And there is an answer, and I'm going to share it with you. But first, let me define high functioning. High functioning means you enjoy being together. Uh, you probably have above av- if you're high functioning. You probably have above average mental health, physical health. Kids stay in school and finish school. Uh, if they're if if it's their temperament, they go on to college. They form good marriages. They don't get pregnant before it's time to be pregnant. I mean, they you don't find teenage. Uh, Pregnancies, unwanted ones, uh, they don't get in trouble with the law. They, they're less subject to obesity. They're mm. less subject to substance abuse. That's high functioning. That, that's what, kind of what we're aiming for. And we could probably add more to the list, but eh, we only have an hour. So <laughs> let, let me go on. How do you get there? And this is what the Family Narratives Laboratory studies. What does it take to be a high functioning family? And possibly this might be the most useful thing that I'll say today. I mean, I hope I say other things that are worthwhile, but this is the biggie. Families that spend time with each other and know their family stories are the ones that are highest functioning. And they've actually done studies where the way you know your family stories is you've spent time together. And imagine kind of like a graph. And here at one end is... Low functioning. That also happens to be ones who spend rather little time together. Then I'm taking this graph up as far as I can to the other side and as high as I can. This is high functioning. And there's an almost perfect correlation with how many meals you have together in the course of a week.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: The more meals, the higher functioning. And why is that? Well, it gets back to why why the stories, the family stories are important, because stories, I don't don't know if you've gotten fascinated as I have by why stories are important, but they're actually, they're like little computer programs inside your head, telling you how to think about things, telling you how to respond to things, telling you how to act. And the general culture of this country and probably the world isn't terribly, strengthening for family bonds.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, it's like a centrifugal force. So mm-hmm. how do you counteract that? I mean, you can listen to the stories of the general culture, which I think is kind of horrifying. Some of the things that they glorify or, or the ugliest music that talks about rape and whatnot. You can you can let your kids have that be the dominant force in their lives, or instead you can have five or more meals together in the course of a week And you can talk about just in the, I mean, you don't, you don't have to have an agenda. I will talk about this, this, and this, but in the course of being together, the kids are probably going to learn about like times that you struggled, times Mm -hmm. maybe you were ill, maybe bankruptcies or maybe great big triumphs, but along the way you are absorbing the culture uh, that... That this is a great family, that uh, we're proud of each other, that we like each other, that um, we want to make each other proud. So spending time together, I think, is the number one thing. And allow me to jump to the number two, because that is a good seg- segue to yes. what, I th- what I think has made both the Hendersons and the Purdues last. And this, again, I'm not sure it's open to everybody, but consider it. The Hendersons, I told you that we started in 1840. By the time the family was 50 years old, and that, I guess, means 1890. Mm -hmm. In 1890, they decided, hey, we really do like each other. We're a great group, but would like those who come after us to experience the same joy of having almost like a tribe of people who care about you and a safety net and a source of values. Let's make sure it doesn't end when we go. And they got together. I think there were like 12 Hendersons at this point, And they pooled money. They were a real estate mo- company, so they could do this. They pooled enough money to endow in perpetuity the Henderson Estate Company, the purpose of which is to fund. Initially, it was to fund the Henderson Estate Dinner every year. And so there was enough money to have just a rip-roaring, great, fantastic dinner. You know, just pull out all the stops, have a great time, where where family members would know they were going to get together. And it was, it was, you know, I can tell you as a child growing up, it was just so exciting when you were old enough, like 12, to attend the family dinner. And there might be 80 or so people there. Well, today, in 2022, it's turned into the Henderson Family Weekend. And I talk with family members who say, yeah, this is one of the high points of their life, getting together with a whole group of people who care about them, who, you know, if they're in trouble, are gonna look out for them or have their back or celebrate when things have gone right. And so an endowed, it could be an, an endowed meal once a year. That took us for, I don't know, probably 80 years. But it did grow into the Henderson Family Weekend. So, if you're if you're the head of a family and you want it to continue beyond, you know, what, beyond your passing, endow a vacation, or or a dinner, or a weekend. And just put enough money in to make a great big event. And I will tell you what's going to happen if you don't. You ready?
0: Sure.
3: Okay. If you don't, here's what happens almost every time. I mean, it is the pattern. You have a strong, thriving family business. You really care about each other. It's going along well. And then the matriarch or patriarch are both go to their great reward. And yeah, you know, for the next year, oh, you get together at Thanksgiving, you get together at the holidays, uh, you miss, you reminisce. Two or three years after that, well, maybe you've kind of gone your separate ways on Thanksgiving's maybe Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, you're not spending together. Uh, By five years, yeah, you'll go to a family wedding. By 10 years, you don't even know your cousins and the whole family's gone poof. And that is what happens if you don't have some mechanism for staying together.
1: You know, and this is fascinating because I've heard the research as well about having family dinner together. And thankfully, I was lucky enough to have family dinner with my family growing up. Lucas had the same with his family, and that's just become a culture that we have created as almost an expectation that this is just how you do things. And <sighs> it's amazing how much power there is in that uniting and coming together on a regular basis with your family unit. I mean, that's not going to be grandparents and aunts and uncles and and everyone who lives outside of the four walls of your home, but but, but being able to have that tight-knit group, that's extremely important. And just being able to have... I was talking to another friend who said quantity time, not just quality time, but quantity, it's quantity.
3: time. It's quantity. It's yes. quantity. So being in lives. Yeah, if you're embedding the culture, uh, just hearing it once doesn't make any difference at all. It's got to be like, well, I have a definition of culture. And mm. I made this up. I think it's fairly accurate, but it is mine. Other people can disagree. But for me, culture is the way we do things. And it's kind of automatic. It's just the way we do things and that doesn't get drummed into the little heads with just saying it once. Mm -hmm. No, they, they, they copy it. They, and they emulate it. Uh, And that, that takes time. And by the way, I have something somewhat controversial to say, but I've seen it work out in both my family of origin and the family I married into. And here's the somewhat controversial thing. I'm against boarding school. Uh, None of the Hendersons sent family members to boarding school. None of the Purdue's have sent family members to boarding school. And, you know, I could certainly afford to have sent my two kids to boarding school. I didn't even seriously consider it because I didn't want somebody else's values to be drummed into their little heads. I, in fact, uh, I didn't even, again, I'm a Sheraton heiress. I could have afforded nannies. I didn't want some other woman's values to be instilled in my kids. And, and values, by the way, I do think are one of the big keys to what makes a family, a business family last or any family. And, you know, among the things that they've simply got to learn from the youngest age is you can't always be right.
0: So, so Mitzi, this is a, this is a great transition to what I've been thinking about the whole time. Um, I can, I can understand when you're starting the family business and you already have these values and systems in place. Um, And I was just wondering if the research isn't skewed by the fact that, you know, you're going to have some families that, that do the family meals and share the family values. And of course, then they stay together and then you have other ones that don't, but is there any research that shows that the ones that haven't performed like the whatever the, the good group is, that they then implement these types of simple things like meals, uh, weekends, so on and so forth. Or I guess my, my question is, is it the chicken coming before the egg or the egg coming before the chicken? And the reason I bring it up is because I think it's important to look at that because there's going to be some people that are going to say, well, yeah, you instill these in their little kids' hearts, but my kids are already matured and I don't know if I can influence them anymore. And, okay. and how do you go about that?
3: All right. That, that's such an important point because everything that I've ever read about inculc- inculcating the culture is get them while they're young.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: On the other hand, I also have a belief it's never too early and it's never too late. You really would like to get them while they're young, but I don't know, some military guy said you go into battle with the army you've got. Uh, so so you deal with what you've got and it's not too late because I'll tell you, I since I got into this, you wouldn't believe how many families I've talked with, including ones where it's... you. Know, there are almost at daggers drawn towards each other, but in almost every case, not every case, almost every case, when it's not going well, the pain is acute. And so their pr- pain is, alas, a great motivator. Mm-hmm. And, and if people are just suffering because like, you know, that when, when we started out a few minutes ago, at the beginning of the show, and I mentioned the famous Last Names Club, a detail that I left out was people kept mentioning that the pain of a badly functioning family permeated every hour of every day. Mm. So if you can tell them ways to get around this, I mean, you're it's, it's one of the most important things that you can do for them. And so if you can tell them, hey, yeah, there's hope. Other families have been just as dysfunctional as yours and they've come out the other side. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: However, uh, a book or a conversation isn't going to do it for them. At that point, they need, I think they need professional help, but there's a whole ecosystem of family advisors. And if somebody is in that state where, where, where they're experiencing pain, pain, because, you know, they're at each other's throats, they're jealous. they, yeah you know, the 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 new wife didn't fit in, and everybody else hates her. Oh, my gosh, that makes me suddenly think of the British royal family. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you you want a dis- dysfunctional family exhibit a, except that I know <laughs> ones that are so much worse. Uh, a quick example. This is a family I talked with in
4: Hong Kong I wish
3: I hadn't told you what country it was, but but here here's the story. Uh, the two brothers married. Their wives couldn't stand each other. They had been doing some somewhat uh, shady financial things. The wife of one of them told the equivalent of IRS of Hong Kong what was going on. The guy ended up in jail. When he came out of jail, he killed his brother. Now, that's a dysfunctional family. Oh, that's terrifying. And, and, and you know, when, when you laugh, you laugh not because something's funny, but because you recognize it. Mm-hmm. Are you aware, by the way, that, that probably half of laughter is from recognition and not from it's funny? Oh, yeah, that's you, yeah, you recognize
0: it in yourself or in, in other uh, situations. Well, in this case, you, you
3: recognize that. the horror.
0: Or, yeah, or, yes, that's what I mean, yourself or, or that you've seen it before, unfortunately.
1: Wow. That is fascinating. So Mitzi, you're talking about there is hope for the family that is currently dysfunctional and decides that we want a different path. We want a different trajectory. And so I think from here, I know you have a call coming in, uh, but as we As we pick up the conversation, what I'd like to then ask you is can we dig into some of the things that you have seen work in functional families that anyone who desires to create a healthy, stronger family culture than they currently have today, whether it was strong coming from past generations or whether it was not, whether there's currently disharmony and discord or whether there's strength, what can families do practically? to start putting things in place to um, handle things like celebrations or how do you handle quarrels or what about the value of philanthropy? So these are some things that we'd like to dig into um, as soon as you are ready. Okay,
3: since I don't know that this person is gonna call exactly on time, what if I just plunge in and start to answer? But it really depends on how dysfunctional they are. Uh, The family where the brother killed the brother after putting him in jail, I don't see a whole lot of hope in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let me let me share one preventive thing. Uh, I I bet I've talked with hundreds of family counselors and I haven't had anybody, maybe even a thousand, because I I give talks publicly. Uh, I've, I've yet to hear a family counselor disagree with what I'm about to say, which is if you have a family quarrel, the one thing that you can't do is take it public. The, you don't want you don't want to read about it in the papers. Uh, you don't want to have public loss. You don't want lawsuits at all, because those are two things that, by the time you get to that point, it's it's pretty close to impossible to put it back together again. And I, the family counselors that I've talked about this with, uh, they say that they won't take clients who, if it's gotten to the point where. Where it's out in the public, or where where lawyers have been retained. Mm. Uh, so, so I'll tell you how the Hendersons and the Purdue's have both followed this, and this is something that I recommend to every family that exists. The Hendersons and the Purdue's, we are both fine with quarrels. Uh, with the Hendersons, we particularly, yet you know, we say, if you've got a beef, get it out, and if you need to yell or scream. And with the Purdue's, I don't think it would even be frowned on if you had to throw something. You have to be heard and you have, we don't want you to like what we call gunny sack it. We don't want you to store it up. Mm. Instead, uh, what we'd like is to, well, in the Hendersons, we call it, we don't wash our dirty linen in public. You can quarrel and you can fight and you can just get it out. And however strongly you feel, you can let everybody else know, yeah, this is how strongly I feel about it. Uh, But you don't go public. You don't wash your dirty linen in public. And I was taught that I think I might have still been in a high chair when when Mm -hmm. I learned that. The Purdues, independently, I mean, long before I came on the scene, came up with the same approach, which is it's called the Covenant and the covenant is the same thing. You can have just the deepest disagreements, but the covenant is you solve it within the family. And if that means, if that means, I'm being hypothetical here, addressing other people, but if your problem is so severe that you can't, you're just not making progress, you're stuck, you're starting to hate each other, at that point, or preferably long before, uh, call in an outside mediator or um, a family counselor, um, maybe even a, a family psychiatrist, get outside help uh, and do it as soon as possible. Cause the longer it festers, the harder it is to cure. Mm-hmm. But the, the uh, you know, I, I said that having meals together was my best piece of advice. I'm not sure it's the best piece of advice because I think it's almost equally important. Don't wash your dirty linen in public, have a covenant. And yeah, you know, it's, in both families, it's just so against the rules to, to suffer in silence. Now, if, so, if something is bothering you and, you know, it's a real world, people are going to be bothered by things. Uh, get it out, deal with it, discuss it. And ideally, if, if the family is old enough and large enough, I think by this, I think you should start thinking of the second third generation by third generation, it ought to be in place you ought to have the equivalent of a constitution. Yes. I mean, you can call it, uh, I, don't, I don't care what you call it, but a way by which you resolve disputes. And like, I'll, sh- I'll share with you how the Purdue's do it. We have a whole constellation of, of a hierarchy of, of issues where like if it's the family vacation, uh, everybody gets to vote and it's just majority. On the other hand, if it has something to do with a stock distribution or uh, the governance of the of the company, it it might take a two thirds majority. And for for some of the really serious stuff, it might only be bloodline. So, but it's understood ahead of time what the rules of the game are. And you know, you maybe you didn't get your way, but at least there was a process by which you were heard, and and a vote was. A vote was taken. That's how it works in the Purdue family. And by the way, that's awfully close to how it works in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have, you know, it's a rules-based society uh, where, in theory, there are ways of of handling disagreements. Uh, The Hendersons have a somewhat different approach. And I think we're more like the British approach. The British don't have a written constitution. The Hendersons don't have a written constitution. But the way the Brits do it is they have, I mean, I'm not sure a Brit would express it this way, but the way it looks to me is they kind of operate on precedent. This is what worked in the past. This is what we're going to pay a lot of attention to. And with the Hendersons, we rarely vote on anything. We just discuss and discuss and discuss. And does this fit who we are or does it not? And somehow we coalesce.
1: And Um, in order to do that, it sounds like you have to know who you are. And so you mentioned earlier having values, which I think is a tremendously important part of any family culture, setting up what is your value system? What is meaningful to you as a family? Where do you think the values fit in this bigger picture of having a strong family and being able to resolve disputes and being able to set up a constitution? Where does
3: that fit for you? I think it's the most important thing there is. Oh. and you know, among the values that that I would teach kids just from the youngest age, well, one of the first is you can't always be right. I just accept that sometimes it's not going to go your way, and yeah, they got to learn that so early because mm-hmm. by the time you're, I don't know, in your twenties or your thirties, and you start thinking, you know, if I think it should be this way, well, it should be this way. Uh, nope, world doesn't work that way, or certainly the family doesn't work that way. Okay, so. Yeah, to me, number one is you can't always be right. Uh, Number two, stewardship. Mm -hmm. That that you're part of something bigger than yourself, and your goal isn't to go and spend the money. Your goal is to stewardship in its largest sense. I mean, you care about the environment, care about the employees, uh, care about those who come after you. Mm -hmm. You are a steward. And, yeah, you know, this is another thing that I'm really proud of that, you know, two families that evolved separately and, you know, I'm kind of a link between them because I married into one. But it's it's kind of amazing to me how much they both came up with, like the stewardship part in the Henderson's. I think it would be really looked down on to have. To get your identity by by spending, I mean, mm. I don't know of any Henderson who gets his or her identity. I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's no, toes, don't. but I don't know a single Henderson or any Purdue who would get his or her identity by having to buy designer clothes.
4: Mm.
3: I mean, that would be, I think, kind of looked down on. That that would be, I mean, does a good steward spend four thousand dollars in a dress? Actually, it would be okay if, if uh, I don't know, if you're on the red carpet or something. But but for day-to-day life, uh, unless it's an amazing occasion, uh, you don't have to spend money in designer clothes.
1: Well, uh, I think what's interesting about that piece, if I may comment for a second, that there's this idea. I'm sure you've heard the rags to rags in three generations or shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, where the challenge that happens is that one generation creates the wealth. The second generation lives in the lifestyle of of using the resources. And by the third generation, they're accustomed to a different kind of lifestyle. They spend and deploy, not deploy in assets, but they deploy, they use up the resources trying to maintain a lifestyle, but being divorced or separated from the work ethic that created the the wealth in the financial wealth in the first place and what you're talking about is the absolute key to not having wealth disperse in that way because what you're saying is you next person you 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 next in line in this generation in this family are equally responsible to contribute to the family and be a producer not just a consumer of resources you're not seen as to uh, to be able to just use up what is there or, or live a certain lifestyle, but you're saying, how do you contribute? How do you produce? How do you steward these resources in a way that wealth is going through you, not just to you? And I think that's a key distinction, that wealth, no wealth is meant to be just received and coming to me. It's meant to go through me. How can I use it to bless the next generation? How can I use it to make a bigger impact in the world? But certainly anyone who just thinks of themselves as a reservoir and a stopping spot for money is not going to see it last very long.
3: And I, I can tell you in both families, uh, you don't win any points by being lavished with money. No, we're, well, I'll, I'll share a way that like in the Purdue family that, that we try to inculcate the idea that being frugal is a virtue. Mm. And by the way, that was really easy with the Hendersons because New Englanders just plain tend to be frugal. But with the Purdue's. I, let's see if it's within reach. It's not. Uh, I have a newsletter for the grownups, but I also have a newsletter for the kids. And each each newsletter is, let me see if it's within reach. Yeah. Can you, can you grab it if you'd like? Okay. It's just out of reach. Go um, ahead. Go ahead. I'd love to hear about okay, this. Okay. Monologue while I grab it. Okay. <laughs> it's,
1: it's amazing um, that... So Mitzi's going to share something really, really unique that we heard about through her previous talk and also through her books. But this idea of being able to communicate values and things that matter through a newsletter that shares family news and keeps the family together. Mitzi, I I can't wait for you to share this. I, I have heard you share about the newsletter before and specifically the one for the children as well that most people wouldn't necessarily think of. So Please do share as much as possible about this. This is beautiful.
3: I'm having the time of my life. You're asking me all the questions I want to be asked. Great. All right. What I'm holding up, you're looking at a treasure chest. Uh, I had 500 of these made, and somewhere around four times a year, at least it's not happening right now because the kids aren't the right age. The uh, but when there are kids between four and twelve. Uh, I send out a newsletter and the newsletter, the purpose of it is to inculcate values. And I'll share with you how how, like the value of being frugal because we simply are frugal, we hate waste, we're... Uh... So I tell the story of uh, great grandmother, Mommy Doo. Mommy Doo was a great cook and at Thanksgiving should always make her famous biscuits. But when she made her famous biscuits, and she made them on a baking sheet that was covered with aluminum foil, and then she'd drop the biscuits onto the aluminum foil, cook them, remove the biscuits, and then with the aluminum foil on top of the baking sheet, she'd take off the aluminum foil, brush off the crumbs, wash it in soap and water, allow it to dry, and reuse it. Mm. Now, why was she reusing the aluminum foil? Well, waste is a sin. We're a frugal family. We just don't waste, and it's perfectly usable again. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that that's that's the story. But every newsletter, and every newsletter is designed to sort of reinforce a family value. But in the case of that, every newsletter has a story, and every story has an activity to go with it that carries out the. Uh, the, the value that we're trying to teach. So the one that I, the, the treasure chest that I grabbed, it's inside it. There's always a gift and it's often a costume of some sort. In this case, we're looking at, oh my, what's that? Um, we're looking at a chef's apron, a chef's toque, and the kids get to wear these. There's a, <coughs> there's a baggie do I mean baggy? Uh, there's a Ziploc bag
4: mm-hmm. that
3: has the ingredients for Mummy Do's biscuits,
4: Ooh.
3: and they get to make the biscuits with their grown-up. And there's even the aluminum foil which they get to spread over the uh, over the baking sheet. Ooh. And at the at the end of it, you go through what Mummy Do did: is you scrape the crumbs off, you wash it, and dry it, and reuse it. And the idea is every activity is designed to last maybe an hour where they talk with their grown up about about the family value that that this newsletter was about. I by would the way love that. okay I would I would li- I would like you to do me a favor and help me give a plug to the book on newsletters how to communicate values to your children so they'll love it.
1: Okay. So this book um, I have not dug into this whole book yet but I know that you talk about the kits that you give out as the children's newsletter. And what's amazing is that if you are just talking to children, we all know that talking can go in one ear and out the other, or it can feel like, why are my parents droning on about this thing that doesn't seem to affect my life. And really our goal though, is not just to say, here's my value. I want you to value my value. We want them to choose to value that thing. And so it can't just be mom and dad's values that I now see. It is, how do I get them to take on this value for themselves? And what you're doing is you're saying, I can do this in a very fun way that they're learning something, not just about the family. You started the whole conversation today by saying it's about time together and knowing the family story. So you are helping the time together aspect happen through these kits, And you are also then saying, helping, you're helping the children to know their family's story and their history. It is amazingly beautiful. And I know that you talk about that in your book, How to Communicate and Values
3: to Children. You know, so if, it, so if it's a large family, and it's geographically dispersed, which both both the families that I'm associated with, you know, it, it's tricky to be able to instill the values when, you know, one's in Maine and one's in California, or or Tokyo or wherever they are. But these I'm the feedback I get from these treasure chest gifts is that the kids just can't wait to open them. And, you know, what kid does it's a principle of persuasion that when you've done something nice for somebody, like giving them a costume, uh, it it makes them receptive. So here's an activity that they like that's timed with their grown up. And then another thing that kind of grew out of it is the parents would take pictures of the kids wearing the costumes and showing the biscuits and then, uh, yeah, they'd share it with each other. And that's kind of a cool thing too, because when there's a family reunion or a wedding or a whatever, uh, the kids know each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had something neat the day that Frank and I married and it's, it's sort of trivial, but I still find it meaningful. Uh, we'd gotten married. It was, it was a reception at the lawn of my house. Uh, there were 12 of Frank's grandchildren, all playing uh, on the lawn together. And I'm standing beside a woman who is saying, isn't, rem- isn't it remarkable? All the cousins seem to know each other. And the reason I remember this one little vision of kids playing and knowing each other and having fun was, I thought that's the most normal thing in the world, doesn't everybody? And she was telling me, no, the different branches of my family don't know each other and they don't know how to play together because they haven't spent time together. So I, I would like to influence families to spend time together where you can have fun together and you do know each other and you do know what's going on in each other's lives. Let's M- 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 uh,
0: M- see, is- M- M- all this has been really, really positive. And I can, th- I can see where people are going to really take these little Tidbits and try to incorporate them, but let's talk real, really quickly about what happens when somebody <clears throat> in the family doesn't, you know, grasp these values. And maybe, maybe uh, you've you've lived a great life with both of your families, and they've always have. But it seems like there's always going to be an exception. And I know you you already talked about how they uh, you you settle quarrels and things like that but is there a time when you just have to basically say, okay, until you uh, get these family values, you're not in the family anymore?
3: Well, I can speak to exactly that because there's, there's a man whom I admire just so much. Uh, his name's Dennis Jaffe, and he's made it his life's work, 40 years that I know of, to study families. And he said that by a hundred years, there's no such thing as a family that hasn't pruned one or more of its branches, mm. and by pruning that means either the the branch just says, eh, "I can't send you, I'm out of here," or the family said, "We can't send you, you're out of here." Mm. So it does happen. However, it hasn't happened in either of the families that I'm part of, so mm. I think I'm living proof that it doesn't have to be that way. By the way, I would adore to talk about. Of the book that I've just finished,
1: yes, let's go ahead and do that. So we have talked a little bit about the books that you currently have already published, and you have another one that you have just finished, and I don't know if you have a date for the release of that book, but I would love to share all about that. Yes, go ahead,
3: thank you now the book that i've uh, that I've just finished i'm going to ask our listeners, and this is rhetorical because <laughs> I can't hear your answer but have you heard of Mark Victor Hansen, the chicken soup for the soul guy?
1: The chicken yes. soup for the soul. Please comment if you're listening live and you have heard.
3: Go ahead. Okay. This man is has sold more books than anybody alive of nonfiction. He had a co-author, Jack, Jack Canfield, but between the two of them, they sold half a billion books. I had the extraordinary privilege of being allowed to write his biography,
4: mm. and
3: I just sent it to the publisher, like, I don't know, three days ago, and, it's, and the publisher said, you know, normally we take a year, uh, not because it takes that long to put a book, you know, to, to print it, but because we have, you know, the, the book tours and the publicity and just all the stuff, there's a queue. So, But he said, I like this so much, I'm putting you at the front of the line. Mm. Uh, We're going to try to have it out in May. Wow, Wow, that's soon. That's exciting. And Mark Victor Hansen, who probably knows more about publishing than anybody else on the planet, uh, well, he tells me something that I'm kind of scared to repeat because I'm scared of jinxing it. But here goes. (laughs) Uh, He says it's a three million copy book. Right. And, amazing. and what would make it a 3 million copy? By the way, the, the name of it is Mark Victor Hansen, Relentless. Mm. And what makes it a 3 million copy book is it tells the story of the man behind this extraordinary success. But what I, what I found most fascinating about it is he's had you know, more failures than you can count, including bankruptcy, being suicidal, uh, a failed marriage, but all, all the things that were just, yeah, it would be just catastrophic for most of us. They propelled him to even higher heights later. Uh, it so he's a story of of just endless persistence and courage and faith. And I end each chapter with comments that I think anybody who who follows the things that you can learn from Mark Victor Hansen's life, you're going to be farther along the road to being all you can be. And you know, if you do even one of them, you're ahead of the game. If you do three or four, I predict success in a scale you haven't imagined.
1: That is fascinating. And, you know, every time we did get um, two comments back, one thought the book was just by Jack Canfield and another listener said yes, that they had heard of him. So thank you for sharing. And I'm excited about your book coming up. And it's amazing how congruent that is with any story that we've seen of somebody who is successful or has achieved some form of success, that there has been those valleys or dips or challenges that it does seem that the greater the difficulty, the greater the opportunity, as Napoleon Hill would say.
3: Whom I love. Yeah. One just quick story. I don't think it's widely known, but Chicken Soup for the Soul was turned down by 144 publishers. Mm. Oh, wow. And and there was almost universal agreement among all the publishers that the title was stupid. And other people said that it was just too nicey-nicey and that that nobody just, as I said, they all turned it down. And yet that one book sold 15 million copies and it started Chicken Soup for the Soul, today it's a franchise, and you can buy my goodness, you can buy chicken soup, dog treats, shampoo. It's just, yeah, you know, his one idea, his ability, his relentless ability to never give up just resulted in something extraordinary. Mm.
2: Um, listening to you talk reminds me of, um, you know, people talk about working. On your business, not just in your business, but that that a lot of business principles apply to family, and um, you know you could be great at business. And you were talking about at the very beginning, all these um, families who were, by your description, dysfunctional. Yet, um, you know, so yes, they they were, or at least one generation of that family was wildly successful in business, but. Um, Sometimes that doesn't translate to um, being successful in other areas of life and the family takes to have a successful family, you have to work on the family, not just in the family. And uh, that reminds me of what what some of the work that Rachel and I have been doing and just in the last, I don't know, year or so we've done just a few things. Like we, we grew up in families that ate together and we've done that with our children, but then we started, we took it up a notch. She got a little more intentional and we took one day a week. That was a we had this very special meal. We have our oldest daughter decorate, set up the table every one day. A week. It's it's like uh, having Thanksgiving every week. Now our two-year-old woke up a couple of weeks ago from a nap and I, and I got her and she's like, is it, is it, we call it, we we do these Shabbat dinners. She's like, is it Shabbat? And she was so excited. And I was like, well, no, we got to wait a few more days for that, but uh, things like that. And then we put uh, our family value on a wall at the end of the table. And now our kids or my oldest daughter will repeat some of them to me. And so just little things like that that um, you can be very intentional about and it doesn't take hold immediately. It may take time, but um, the next generation by you showing the enthusiasm for it will, can pick that up.
3: Well, then I wanna, how much time have we got? A uh, Quick, quick story. This comes from a former Secretary of Health Education and Welfare, Joe Califano. He started a group called CASA, Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse. And again, he's studying what makes high, what's preventive for uh, substance abuse. And he said parents would be absolutely astonished if they knew how deeply they affect their kids with their words. Like Mm. the kid can be saying, I hate you and never want to see you again. But the kid will still, when he's older, act out what what parents were teaching him or her. Mm. That. That you, you know, Even when it's really going badly, they're still listening to you mm. much more than you think they are.
1: That's profound because if we take their words at face value in those moments and we respond to just those words and we step out of character, that's not going to lead them the direction that they need to go, which is us staying focused focused, committed, and living out our ideals and living out our value system in front of them. So that was very well said. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the family teams work. Um, Jeremy Pryor, we just spoke with last week, and he's begun this group called family teams. And he was talking about the root of addiction is isolation and the need to have a culture and have people around you who believe in you. And that being one of the main reasons why family is so critical and important, and not just only the nuclear family, but the larger family, the, the generational family, the parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and having that whole family come together. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm just so fascinated by the idea of how people, normal people who maybe don't have a tremendous, warm, uh, supportive environment in their family, maybe they have a few relationships that are good and some that are maybe a little bit broken. Maybe things aren't as good in your family as you would like them to be. How... Each one of us can take these steps towards strengthening what we provide, what we give to the next generation, but also how we, how we grow those roots back, what I would call upstream, back towards the past generations and pull in more of those stories and learn more about our history and, and value and honor and cherish what came before. Even if there's, there's always going to be pieces that maybe weren't ideal or picture perfect, but how can we celebrate the strengths so that we can Create strength
3: on both sides. Yeah, and well, in the Henderson family, I, I'm pretty sure I can't recommend this to everybody else, but we have a tradition that uh, that by the time you're 60, you're supposed to write your autobiography, and we we have books, we've got shelves and shelves and shelves that go back to like the 1800s, mm. and and that. Those books, they tell you know, the disasters, the triumphs, the, uh, and it's, it's just so good to know where you came from.
4: Mm.
1: Can you briefly mention, I know we are we're at the top of the hour. We need to wrap up soon. We typically try to keep the podcast within an hour, but I would like to ask you this question. You mentioned at one point you reached out to family members and had them contribute their story to a book that then was a compilation of each person telling their experience of what they loved about the family. Can you share about that and,
3: and how that became such a meaningful project? We have the What It Means to Be Us book, and there are probably 70 entries into it. Everybody over age 12 is supposed to write a little essay. It can be 150 words, one wrote a thousand words of what does it mean to be us? And the great, oh, there's so many good things about it. But first of all, it gets everybody thinking about what does it mean to be us? But then on top of that, it's so cool for me in my 80s to read what a 12-year-old, what's on her little mind. Uh, I think she's really interested to hear what's on my mind. You get to know each other in a way that you didn't, and you get, I I think, just the act of putting it in writing and in a book, it's fabulous for strengthening the family, it's It's just a great identity thing. It's yeah, you know, you're you're thinking about this all-important question and not taking it for granted. What does it mean to be us?
1: Mm. Well, Mitzi, we need to wrap for now. I'm sure we would be able to have you back on in the future if you would be so inclined. But can you share with us if somebody wants to get a hold of your books or hear more about you and your work that you're doing on anti-trafficking, or if they want to connect with you and have you speak for their event, how would they reach out to you?
3: Okay. I, I am at this moment working on, on creating a website for Relentless. They can get to me. <clears throat> let's see if they go to mitzipurdue.com. You'll get to a look for the contact us section. And if you write me, I'll write you back.
1: That's excellent. And that dot com.
3: Exactly. And I'd love to hear from people.
1: Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I, I would love to put a capstone on, on this conversation, but Bruce and Lucas, do you have anything else that you would like to share before I do?
2: I'm just grateful you came on our show.
0: So
1: thank
2: you
0: thanks thank you mitzi for sharing your uh, family values with us
3: well i've loved being on to get together with you and and rachel thank you for so many questions they were just what i love
1: that's excellent mitzi it's really amazing and unique to talk with somebody who is on this trajectory of not just saying how can i do the best for myself and my family but how can i help other people. Be exposed to these ideas and think differently about the resources available to me that maybe maybe I wasn't or didn't have access to before. And so, thank you for sharing these ideas. You've made us definitely expand the our, our way of thinking and be able to do more with what we currently have. So, thank you so so much for being with us today.
3: I've loved every second of it. Thank
1: you. Thank you. And in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking Put in your name and primary email address. Click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside.
0: Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on the MoneyAdvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at Hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated, offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated, and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.